October edition of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Janolfi. And I'm Howard Marlowe. Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for hosting us. On today's podcast, we'll discuss the destructive wake of Hurricane Ian across the Gulf and East Coasts and discuss the Corps' role in assessing and repairing damages from hurricanes and coastal storms. And then we'll have a discussion on federal flood insurance and an update on congressional appropriations and supplemental disaster funding for the Corps and other federal agencies. Let's get started. So Hurricane Ian is still leaving its mark on the U.S. today as we record this episode. Um, I think it's moving its way off of New Jersey up towards New York, and then it kind of just it's going to peter out a little bit, and that'll be it. It's been hanging around a lot more than the headlines have been hanging around. It's yesterday's storm, albeit it is, in terms of damages, it's still catching headlines. Hurricane Ian uh, pretty quickly became really nor'easter, Ian, uh, yep. as it sort of parked itself in the mid-Atlantic. Um, but after freakishly strengthening into a major hurricane in the Western Caribbean and shortly de- deciding to avoid the Yucatan Peninsula, and, uh, Ian sped northwest towards Fort Myers with winds exceeding, ex- winds exceeding 155 miles an hour, uh, destroying nearly everything in its path while sparing the more densely populated area of Tampa, Florida to the north. <clears throat> another, issue is Ian, another issue with Ian was the flooding introduced a uh, large amount of toxins and contaminants to the local groundwater system. Uh, where raw and partially treated wastewater released from treatment plants had already raised alarm. Um, <clears throat> while the status of uh, numer- numerous of those toxic sites, including those overseen by the EPA, uh, currently remains unclear. Ian's rage resulted in power and water outages and flooding across Florida as it made its way back to the Atlantic, where it paid a devastating blow to Myrtle Beach. Um, and then, as we said uh, just a few minutes ago, Ian then parked itself in the mid-Atlantic, uh, where it drenched New Jersey, causing widespread coastal flooding and uh, from rain and storm surge and chewing away at its beaches. In Myrtle Beach, the dunes were overtopped, uh, causing widespread flooding, and a shrimp trawler was washed ashore after its crew required a helicopter rescue from the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, in New Jersey, Ian reincarnated himself as a nor'easter, which continues now at today's either day five or day six, I think. It seems forever. Um, a lot of erosion there, um, and uh, unfortunately, the colder temperatures that many of us are feeling in the north do not spell the end of hurricane season, which continues long into November. Uh, the waters are still warm out there, uh, even though the temperatures are getting cold. The temperature of the water lags a lot, and so the waters out in the Caribbean and Florida are still plenty warm to produce uh, powerful hurricanes. And remember, Hurricane Sandy was a late October hurricane, so. One thing that uh, we haven't mentioned so far, there was a lot of damage to wildlife. And, uh, you know, not certainly to animals, you know, pets and the like, but to a lot of the wildlife uh, in the southern states that uh, thrives down there. So they are trying to, you know, rescue as many animals as possible and get them into safe places and get them healthy again. Was that wild animals, farm animals? Uh, was it from flooding? Yes, yeah, primarily from flooding, absolutely. And as wild animals, it could be farm animals, yeah. too. We don't think about that, but there's a heck of a lot of farmland in that area that's been hit all the way up through uh, from Florida up to uh, New Jersey and probably further. Well, with the job of protecting America's developed shoreline against flooding and coastal storms, the Corps of Engineers has major work ahead of it following catastrophes like Hurricane Ian. Uh, 
the standard protocol for the court to assess damages uh, is for the court to assess damages and then provide Congress with estimates of those costs and those damages so that lawmakers can move quickly to pass disaster supplemental appropriation bills. And those are in addition to the 12 annual spending bills um, that Congress has to pass. And uh, it author authorizes the Corps and other federal agencies to take action under the emergen emergency authority, which is frequently uh, known as PL 8499. The Corps' last supplemental bill authorized three, uh, about $3.3 billion um, in federal funding after Hurricanes Michael and Florence, uh, which for context is about half the Corps' annual budget. Um, the good news is, uh, as a part of the just passed continuing resolution to keep the government funded until December 16th, there's $8.8 billion uh, available for current and future disasters. Although none of that money will actually go to the core, um, that is all FEMA money. Yeah, few people know until it hits them that uh, storms to core and the damages caused to core projects, the core doesn't have a, you know a stash of money sitting on hand to pay for those damages like FEMA has. Uh, so it has to wait for a supplemental appropriations bill to be passed. Sometimes, and I want to say this right now because I certainly hope that isn't the case, sometimes that can take a year to happen. So we have to, I think a lot of communities would like to see this moving quickly because the damages were devastating, whether they be from wind or from storm surge, and particularly that surge, even after the winds died down, the waves were just huge. And I think that's an interesting point that you, that you bring up is, you know, even as the na really the nation's largest engineering contractor, there's no reserve fund or contingency fund, right? No. So they need, they, they rely on Congress to appropriate whatever that is, where FEMA does have some funds on hand that are, you know, specifically set aside for disasters. Sure. I mean, you have the uh, NFIP premiums that pay, plus you have money that is appropriated to FEMA. Uh, plus money that's been loaned to them in the past. And so one of the things that I, that I learned a few years ago was the Corps' flood and uh, FCCE program. Uh, flood and coastal, whatever it is, I'm missing the sea, emergencies, yes. That, that program gets funded every funding cycle, but that's not really for emergency repairs. It's for things like training and... And stocks. It's, it stocks up materials. So in terms of uh, the, the core is right now, as we're talking, and was a day after Ian passed, let's say, a given area, it was there. And they're there with uh, food supplies. They're there with uh, materials, whatever they can to do to help. And they work with FEMA and coordinate with FEMA. So they have stocks of material, equipment ready to bulldoze and stuff like that. Uh, all is staged in different areas. But when you see when you see in an appropriations bill, let's say two hundred million for flood and coastal emergencies, that's not for repairing those products. None, not at all. Which is, can yeah. be a little misleading sometimes. Yeah. Um, so. Continuing on about Ian, another disaster may be unfolding right in front of our eyes, and that is the financial ruin that will saddle many residents who don't have or recently gave up their flood insurance policies. 
As reported by E&E News, Ian's web of damage was unusually widespread as the hurricane drove storm surge onto coastal areas and triggered river overflows and flash flooding across inland Florida where almost nobody has flood insurance. Disaster declarations were made in nine counties Thursday, making residents eligible for federal aid uh, to pay for minor home repairs, short-term housing, and other emergency costs. But of the 1.8 million households in those nine counties, only 29% have federal flood insurance, according to an, an analysis of government records. That leaves 1.3 million households at ground zero without federal, uh, without federal flood coverage. And even worse, Ian hit Florida as the state faces an internal insurance crisis. Policyholders there pay the nation's highest property insurance rates, and huge losses have forced six small uh, Florida-based insurers into insolvency this year, while others have, uh, have had to stop writing new policies. That pushed homeowners into Citizens Property Insurance Corporation, the state-backed insurer of last resort. The number of the number of its policyholders has doubled in the past two years and recently passed $1 million for the first time since 2014. Disputes and litigation will arise when property insurers like citizens deny claims because they say that damage was caused by flooding, which their policies don't cover. Uh, for context, the denial, the denial rate in Florida for Hurricane Matthew in 2016 was roughly 40%. People without flood insurance will have to rely on FEMA aid, which is capped at 72000 but usually results in payments of less than $10,000. I didn't realize uh, that uh, the denial rate was 40%. That's huge. That's huge. A lot of people who had that last resort didn't have a last resort. And that really puts people, and just a lot of people, we just don't realize. You know, I try to think when Ian hit, I tried to think about people, if I, my home were on the coast of South Carolina and Polly's Island or someplace like that, and uh, my home, first floor, got flooded. I mean, it'd be huge, 10, 20,000, who knows what the damages would be. And I'm not living in an area where that we normally have flood insurance. I remember being warned years ago by the town that I live in that we were eligible, not really warned, we were told that we were eligible to get flood insurance because we have some, some creeks running nearby and they do run you know kind of high but they haven't really at least in my area they haven't run over but of course that's because we haven't been hit by a hurricane but we could be mm -hmm. we could be so I don't want to think about it in terms of it but I think you try to empathize with the folks who have been hit and realize the uh, disruption, not only to homes, to businesses, small businesses particularly, which uh, get totally dislocated. I was going to say dislocated to where? I mean, relocated to where? So I think it's serious. It's uh, just one of the reasons that, you know, you, in New Jersey and New York, you hear people say, oh, well, we're still recovering from Sandy. You say, what, what do you mean? It was yeah. 10 years ago. But when you really dive into the details, you see that there's reason that people even 10 years now are still recovering. It's because the losses are so huge. And I think we're, we're going to see that in, in Florida, certainly. I think some of the other areas you mentioned, like you know, Myrtle Beach and New Jersey, they lost some beach. There's some flooding. But there are, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has seen the pictures from Fort Myers. And yeah. obliterated, and it's awful. So, yeah, on the front page of Washington Post uh, yesterday, uh, Sanibel 
and uh, damage is done there. But there are just so many places in that uh, part of Florida that could also be on the front page of the Washington Post because they have equal problems. We also have uh, issues, though, of a sinking tax base. Yeah, this leads us right into another discussion about the larger picture. So we really have, whenever you have low-lying neighborhoods that are being flooded, and the more often they're being flooded, you know, the home values recede. They don't, certainly they don't increase as much as they would without the floods. And for a moment, I'll tell you why um, a, a recent study said that they had, were actually receding. Further, that sinks the tax bases of municipalities. You know, the property taxes are the major source of local government income, and that's based upon the value of the property. So if you have less income, you're able to do less in terms of implementing resiliency projects. Really, in getting resiliency along the coast, we really count on local governments to be able to implement some of the projects that they're planning. But they don't, they're at least, in good times, they're at least able to have the money. They don't have, that property tax needs to be paid, you know, it pays for roads or schools and a variety of things that are absolutely day-to-day -day necessary. They don't have the, quote, luxury of looking at their future and their resilience and their ability to survive in the future. So as high and dry properties get bought by more wealthy individuals, lower income men, women, and families are forced to reside in less costly yet more risky areas. This is truly a vicious cycle that must be addressed systematically with investment from federal, state, and local governments in the private sector. Something that I saw in a study on this subject by Climate Central. If I pull that out for a second, uh, they, they noted that the uh, boundary lines of properties, coastal properties that are being flooded, strike the word coastal, properties that are being flooded, is shrinking. The more it shrinks, the less property there is, and therefore the less property valuation there is, and therefore the less property tax income there is, because it's based on, you know, my house is worth nothing, but my land is worth a lot. Uh, the old saying from farmers, they're land poor. Well, a lot of us who live in, in homes and areas, <clears throat> our land is worth more than the structure that's on it. Unless you're Mar-a-Lago, maybe, I have no idea. So that's another factor to keep in mind, that there's really uh, a shrinking property base <laughs> taking place, which they've put as a high, um, high loss factor that we have to keep in mind that has real impact on local governments that really hasn't been uh, focused on lately and certainly not given the attention it needs to be given. Local governments need help in being able to implement resilience and get their, get their folks out of harm's way. I think that this is, uh, I think I've heard, it was either a news article that I read or I heard it somewhere, this is sort of climate gentrification. Yes. You've got wealthy homeowners who are going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to buy the high and dry properties. Why, why would I not? And you've got people who say, well, okay, well, my job is in this area. I have to live somewhere. And eventually what happens is, most of the expensive, safe properties have been bought up, so you're left living in an area that is more risky. I'm not saying you're living in, you know, at the base of a river, but I'm saying that you just live in an area that's more likely to flood. And as you, as those 
that theme gets passed along to more and more low-income families, and it, it, it's just climate gentrification. And what you have at the bottom and top of the totem pole is really inequity. Significant amount of it, and, and it's it's kind of harsh because the more we communicate risk, and we're more effective at communicating risk, the more people who can afford to move to places that are less risky will then displace the people who are currently living in those areas. And it's affordable now, but it's because of gentrification. It is no longer affordable to them to just be able to move some other place that is less risky. It's a serious problem and uh, along the coast and, and uh, elsewhere because it's river rain problems, same thing there, wherever people can get out of the way of a fire, for that matter, and find places to move. It's a real problem. And I think that on barrier islands, you know, I think people with, with you know, second homes in particular, but coastal homes tend to be more expensive. But even, even in those areas where you have, you know, wealthy people living on barrier islands, well, most of the island is flat. And then right where the dunes are, it can be 10, 15, 20 feet above the rest of the island. So what you have is the, you know, most people on the island with, you know, properties anywhere from 600, maybe two, three million dollars, which is not cheap. But then you have on the, you know, along the dunes, along the areas where it's 10, 15, 20, 30 feet above, you know, the average level on the island, you have 15, 20, 30 million dollar mansions. And so that's just a prime example. Those, those will never flood, right? And then just about every other person on the island will. So it's, you know, there's an example right there in areas that really aren't climate gentrified yet. But so I just wanted to put that out there because I've, I think we've all seen it firsthand if you go to really any, any of the barrier islands on the East Coast. And you also have to realize that there are no easy answers to this. We've just talked about the fact that you communicate risk, you get people out of harm's way, but those are the people who can afford to get out of harm's way or get you know, the first out. The other thing I, that I want to mention is that people are always talking about, well, let's get people to move back and move away. Well, studies that have been done, well, one study that I know of that has been done has shown that people who moved away moved to equally risky areas. So the fact that people moved out of this particular risky area that the study covered, which is a very large metropolitan area around Houston, uh, after the floods there from riverine flooding, um, the study said that they moved to equally risky areas. So be careful what you wish for, because you may not be reducing risk. Well, depending depending on which which wealth class we're talking about, is if you're wealthy enough to afford the insurance premium, absolutely, hey, live wherever you want. Absolutely. I've, I've talked to people along the coast, uh, and when they talk about the fact that they, they may already know that they're in a risky area, they look at it sometimes, and, and the they here is the people that I talked to at one time in one neighborhood. We're talking about these as, well, I'll have my 20 years use out of it, and okay, I won't be able to pass it along to my kids, but I'll get 20 years of good use out of it. So the different attitudes out there, they're all legitimate in the sense I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking people who have these, these views because the fact is they're property owners. They could afford it. They did it. So, yeah. At the end of the day, it's a personal choice. Um, but, you know, in order 
getting back to Ian, in order for our federal agencies to respond to disasters like Ian, they need funding. And so fortunately, last Friday, uh, Congress passed a continuing resolution to fund the government through December 16th. Uh, that will also provide disaster aid and another short-term extension to the National Flood Insurance Program, I know, again, yeah. <laughs> and provide low-income energy assistance. Right now, there is $18.8 billion for FEMA to respond to Hurricane Ian, but that will not enable the Corps to rebuild beaches. Uh, that will have to be another uh, disaster supplemental. The CR also provides $2 billion in funding for the Community Development uh, Block Grant Program, which is an important program that we've mentioned uh, several times before on, this, on the Waterlog podcast. So of the 250 bills that have been introduced in Congress that we track that impact coastal communities, only four of them have been passed into law. Three of those were emergency funding measures. Before Congress adjourns, we really expect WERDA to be passed as an amendment to the Defense Authorization Bill, and other bills are also likely to be passed. One is called the Community Disaster Resilience Zones Act. It requires FEMA to designate communities that are at the most risk and least likely to recover from natural hazards using data that the bill also requires FEMA to collect. What they do after they designate these zones is another issue that's not addressed, but at least the bill is well-intentioned, let's put it that way. That's good. Well, I'm interested to see how that one pans out. No promises for me, that's for sure. That's all for this month. Uh, keep an eye out for an e-waterlog update later this month. And uh, please share this podcast with a friend. And remember, you can always stay up to date by following us on LinkedIn and subscribing to Waterlog if you haven't already. We'll see you after Halloween. <laughs>